Hi, WorkWell listeners. I'm really excited to share that my book, Work Better Together, is officially out. Conversations with WorkWell guests and feedback from listeners like you inspired this book. It's all about how to create a more human-centered workplace. And as we return to the office for many of us, this book can help you move forward into post-pandemic life with strategies and tools to strengthen your relationships and focus on your well-being. It's available now from your favorite book retailer. We often overlook one of the most important relationships we have in our life, the relationship with ourselves. We can be our own worst critic, but we have to remember that perfection shouldn't be the goal. In fact, when we learn to accept our weaknesses, we can create more opportunities to grow and embrace the awesome human inside of every one of us. This is the WorkWell podcast series. Hi, I'm Jen Fisher, Chief Wellbeing Officer for Deloitte, and I'm so pleased to be here with you today to talk about all things well-being. I'm here with Natalie Kogan. She's a leading emotional fitness expert on a mission to help millions of people struggle less and thrive more in work and life. Natalie is the co-founder and CEO of Happier, a leading wellness company. She's also a best-selling author of several books, including her latest, The Awesome Human Project break free from daily burnout, struggle less, and thrive more in work and life. Natalie, welcome to the show. I'm so grateful to be here again. To, what a treat. To, say, to be back. You are <laughs> actually the first WorkWell guest to be on the show twice. So Woo-hoo! congratulations Pressure. on that. But more importantly, you. congratulations on your new book. Awesome Human Project. Thank you, thank you. I'm, I'm, I honor. I take on the responsibility of being a two-time guest. I will do my best, <laughs> and thank you. Well, the guests loved your first episode, but let's give our listeners, just in case they don't remember, I don't. I mean, you're kind of unforgettable, but let's give them a refresher. You know, your personal story, how you became passionate about happiness and well-being. Take us on that journey. Yeah, um, it wasn't an expected one, as I guess and most stories like this aren't. Um, I didn't grow up thinking, oh, one day I'm going to teach people emotional fitness skills for a living. Um, (laughs) That would have been funny. I grew up actually in Russia. I came here as a refugee when I was a teenager with my parents. And I always start my journey there because it was such a difficult, I mean, it was a traumatic experience in a way. It was a dream, um, but it was really traumatic. I mean, I didn't speak the language. I, you know, everything was new. My parents couldn't really t- take care of me. They were trying to figure out their stuff. And that experience instilled in me this idea that anything meaningful you do in life has to involve struggle. Mm-hmm. And so for the next 20 years or so, I worked really, really hard. I didn't know the word grit at the time, but I really owned it. Like I should have had a grit t-shirt. Uh, because I just gritted my way through, I mean, everything from learning English, I went to a great college, built a really, really successful career in, you know, venture capital and finance and technology, um, started companies, was part of companies, wrote books, and it was all incredibly meaningful to me. And it felt really incredible to be able to really honor this dream, you know, of uh, living in America and taking uh, advantage of these opportunities. But it 
it was all at an enormous personal cost. I was constantly exhausted and stressed and overwhelmed. I'm sure many listeners are nodding right now. Um, my experience might have been, uh, the facts might be different, but I think we all can relate to this. But most importantly, I assumed that was the only way. Like I assumed that struggling through life and work was the only option because I was doing something that was meaningful. And then several years ago, I hit a wall and I completely burnt out. And when I say burnout, you know, it's a term that has now become unfortunately very popular. Mm. I think we all experience burnout. I know you've gone through it in different ways. For me, what it meant was I just stopped like the light went out. And I stopped being able to function as a leader, as a CEO of a company called Happier that I had founded, which is I mean, the irony there, Um, as a mom, as a leader of a team. And it was very, very scary. Um, I didn't really know what to do, but I had to find a way. I didn't want to give up initially. It was for my daughter, which is why both of my books are dedicated to her. Um, And so I went searching for, actually, to be honest with you, I'm not sure what I was searching for. I was searching for any kind of help to try and figure out how I could live and work differently. And through a lot of research and a lot of trial and error, a lot more trial and error, I found a way I took these small steps and I learned different practices. And I ultimately, if I had to summarize what I did, I, for the first time in my life, recognized that I'm a human being. I have feelings and emotions and needs, mental energy needs, emotional, physical And that I needed to create a more supportive relationship with myself, my thoughts and emotions. And that became my kind of personal training. And then eventually, after several years, I realized, um, wow, this is helping me so much. I'd like to offer it to others. And here we are. Here we are. And we're grateful for you because so many of us, including myself, do need it on a regular Mm -hmm. basis. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So let's mm-hmm. talk about your new book called The Awesome Human Project. Tell me about the book and tell me more importantly, what makes humans awesome and talk about the power of connection because I know this is something that you and I both share and believe in. Yes. Um, I actually want to start there, um, you know, because I want to tell you and everyone listening that I don't have to know you. You, I happen to have the honor of knowing, but everyone listening, I don't have to know you to be confident that you're an awesome human. Mm. And what I mean by that is something very specific. I believe we all have the capacity to do meaningful things, to be a force of good in the life of others, to um, positively impact our families, our teams, our friends, our communities. That's the awesome part. But we're also human. And that means that We don't have unlimited energy. We can't do all the things always and do them perfectly that we need to honor our humanity and take care of ourselves. And also that we need to do some work to remove the mental blocks that hold us back. And so we're all awesome and we're all human. So we're awesome humans. And I think it's such an important message that I want to bring to everyone right now. I think we're a society, um, you know, we're obviously going through a pandemic, but I think we're also going through a pandemic of forgetting the goodness in ourselves and each other. I think we're in a place where, um, you know, endless self-criticism and criticism of everything around us has become kind of like the thing. And so a part of my my raison d'etre, my bigger why for writing this book is to 
encourage us and give skills because that, that's how I roll for all of us to reconnect to the awesome human in ourselves and in others. You know, the way we treat others is rooted in how we treat ourselves. Mm. One of the big lies I told myself during the journey that I shared was that it didn't matter how I felt. It didn't matter that I criticized myself all the time. I cared about my teams. I cared about people in my life. And I thought I could be a great compassionate leader. And I thought I could be a great coworker, regardless of how I treated myself. But that was a really big lie. And it's painful to say this. But what I learned um, after I burned out is I, I brought out lack of compassion. I was impatient with people. I expected perfection from everyone around me. And I went ballistic when I didn't get it. So the way we treat others is rooted in how we treat ourselves. And so reconnecting to our own awesome humanness, as I call it, is also going to help us to see more of the awesome humanity in each other. And that's that's the power of connection, which is something we need so much right now. You know, one of the things I talk about in the book is, and it's kind of one of the core concepts and the skills that I offer is that we choose the mental lens through which we see ourselves, mm-hmm. the world, and other people. The, our, the thoughts our brain gives us, they're not some kind of accurate descriptions of objective reality, right? You get an email from a colleague and your brain is like, oh my God, she's so annoying. She's being so nasty in this email. Well, that's actually not fact. That's an interpretation. Your brain has used a lens. And maybe it's a lens this colleague had done this before and she actually was trying to be rude. Maybe so it's a lens of past experience. Maybe it's a lens of the negativity bias. We all focus on what's wrong or could be wrong much more than what's right. But the thing is, we don't have to go along with the lenses our brain automatically chooses. We get to choose the lens through which we see ourselves and others. And this book and the skills and the practices in it is an invitation to look at ourselves and others through this lens of our awesome humanity. So... You know, I love it, but it's hard. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so talk about that. Like why like why mm. is it so hard? It is so hard because of our amazing, wonderful and limited brain. So I just need to say this off the top and I say this with love to everyone's brain. But your brain does not care about your happiness. It doesn't care about your thriving. It doesn't care about your joy and it doesn't care about, you know, your feelings. None of that matters. Keeping you alive, right? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Your brain. Exactly. Only one thing safety from danger. And so your brain cares about your survival. And because of that, it's developed some of these mental lenses to keep you safe, quote unquote. So I mentioned your brain has a negativity bias. Danger usually comes with something negative about it. So the brain is always looking out what could be wrong, what is wrong, we remember wrong things. And that lens, by the way, the negativity bias, Jen, we also apply it to ourselves, right? Do we get up in the morning and go, ah, I'm, I'm so great. I got so much done yesterday. I look great. I'm so proud of myself. Maybe a few people do. I have yet to meet one. Most of us get up in the morning, right? And it's like, oh my God, I have new wrinkles. Oh, there's too much fat around my stomach. I didn't even finish my to-do list yesterday. I was being so lazy. Oh my God, are right? You, are you spying on me, Natalie? <laughs> <laughs> I'm spying on myself. <laughs> That's what I'm doing. I'm spying on myself. So that negativity bias 
we have to recognize the brain is also applying it to us. The other lens our brain uses is kind of a lens of um, past experience. So we don't see things as they are. We see things as we believe they are, right? And so, oh my God, I, I can never, this things never work out for me. Or I suck. I suck at public speaking. I'm just terrible at public speaking, right? So these are just some examples of statements that that's your brain applying its lens of like past experience or stories that we've believed about ourselves, you know, that have come from maybe our parents or maybe past experiences or the media, whatever it is. But that's why it's hard because the brain is out there creating these stories because it really doesn't care about anything other than keeping you safe from danger. And so it's our work as awesome humans to practice choosing these lenses. And that's what the book is about. It's about strengthening what I call emotional fitness skills to help us do that. Yep. And I want to get into the five skills. Um, but I, I, I want to step back first and mm. step back, but you talked about struggle um, mm. and, you know, struggle in life and kind of, you know, it's, it's in the title of your book mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and challenges are constant in life, but you say struggle is optional. Mm. So tell me more about that. Yeah, I'm, I'm officially calling BS on the very popular meme of, you know, the struggle is the real. Struggle is real. <laughs> I'm officially what about calling, the hustle? <laughs> that's right. I'm, I'm calling, that's my next book. I'm calling BS on all that, you know, and I spent, I mean, look, I, I spent 15 years of my career in startups and very fast paced companies where this was kind of the way of being, right? You know, you just tough it out, you hustle it out, you struggle it out. But here's the difference. Challenge is what happens on the outside. And being human is hard. I think it's one of the first, um, this is in the introduction of my book, like being human is hard. Um, there are things coming at us all the time. I mean, look, you and I are having a second conversation during the pandemic. Did any of us expect that this was going to happen? And all the personal challenges we've had to handle and professional. So challenges are part of life. You know, I often say challenge is a feature. It's not a bug. And there's nothing we can do. We, we can't predict when they come. We can't prevent them. But struggle is our internal experience of the challenge. Struggle comes from the way that we react towards the challenge, the mental lens that we choose. It comes from the way we treat ourselves. So we can either treat ourselves with harshness and endless criticism, or we can support ourselves through this challenge. And, cha- and struggle also comes from the way that we handle our own emotions, including the difficult emotions about this challenge. And so struggle is about our internal experience and we can reduce it. It is optional. So even when we go through really incredibly difficult life things, personally, professionally, we can choose. And the way we do this is by creating this more supportive relationship with ourselves. We can choose to reduce that inner struggle. And I feel like you and I talked about this before. You're a big Haruki Murakami fan, right? Yes. Huge. <laughs> and, and this is, just really reminds me of a quote from him that's, you know, uh, pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. Yes. So absolutely. Very similar. I, I feel like we mm-hmm. talked about that on the first you, episode and now I'm going to have to go back and listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> me too. And now I'm going to have to, I have a pile. Haruki Murakami is my top three like favorite author. So now, now you're inspiring me to grab a book and read some. Yep. Yep. So, okay. Let's talk about, we've, we've, we've touched on it. The five core emotional fitness skills. Let's, let's dive in. Um, and, and you also talk about the skills for emotionally fit teams. So let's, mm. 
talk about that since this is a podcast about well-being at work. Um, <laughs> let's talk about the individual and the teams. Yes. And the first thing I want to say, and I say this whenever I speak with, you know, leaders or people running companies is, uh, and they, you know, and they tell me, okay, tell me about ways to help my team be more emotionally fit or have greater well-being. And I tell them, we can't talk about your team before we talk about you. Yep. Because just like we can't give what we don't have, like if we are empty on energy and exhausted, we really can't do great work or contribute to others in a meaningful way. I tell leaders, you can't teach what you don't practice. I, as a leader, tried to teach what I didn't practice for 20 years, and I saw the negative impact it had. So the five skills, and again, first, the lens is it's for you as an individual. So the five skills are, I'll just say them, and then I'll talk a little bit about them. Acceptance, gratitude, self-care, intentional kindness, and compassion, and the bigger why. And they are in order. Um, there, we do have to begin with acceptance because acceptance is the gateway skill. Acceptance is a skill of looking at whatever challenge or situation you're dealing with, um, with clarity, which means just focusing on the facts that you know to be true and separating out those stories that your brain's lenses have created. And then using that as your starting point to say, okay, this is how it is. This is how I feel. What is one thing I could do to move forward with less struggle? And so acceptance is the gateway skill to get ourselves out of what I call in the book, the valley of struggle, which is the difference between how something is and how we've decided it should be, right? And so um, a lot of us are in the valley of struggle now because the world is not as it should be, right? There's so, so many challenges going on. And acceptance is a skill of just bringing your attention to, okay, what are the things I know to be true versus the stories my brain has created? And given what I know to be true and how I feel, what what's one thing I could do to move forward? And this is an incredibly powerful skills for teams as well. You know, research shows that leaders who are most effective at guiding their teams through crises, which is how I define the time we're in, they create um, uh, a culture, an atmosphere where people feel open about sharing their challenges. And that's a really key part of acceptance. And so to cultivate the culture of acceptance, first of all, the leader has to practice. So you have to actually practice this on your own. But it's also about having these conversations with the team where everyone gets an opportunity to share how they're feeling. But then as a leader, you guide the discussion to focus on, okay, so you know, this is challenging. Here are the things we know to be true. Here's how everyone feels about it. Okay, what are some steps we could take to move forward? So it's a really, really um, powerful skill. It's kind of uh, one I use on autopilot these days because, boy, there's a lot of things the brain has decided are not how they should be. So that's acceptance. Um, and I, I say in the book, and I say this um, now, it's probably the most challenging skill. So when, Joe, when you said, why is this so hard? It's because our brain doesn't want to practice acceptance. Our brain would rather keep us in the valley of struggle because that's familiar. Those patterns are familiar. So that's why it's so challenging. Um, but acceptance is a skill that can help you really dramatically reduce um, what I call kind of unnecessary self-created stress. There's stress in life. Stress is natural. But our thoughts can create a lot of additional stress when we kind of ruminate on these stories, go along with these stories. And so this is the skill to really save your energy from doing that. The second skill is gratitude, I think is probably more familiar. But um, the way that I define gratitude is focusing in on small positive moments in your day and life as they are, including when things are challenging, 
And being really generous with your gratitude towards other people. So research shows that when you're going through a difficult time, practicing gratitude um, dramatically improves resilience. It reduces stress. It actually helps us sleep better. You and I were chatting about sleep before uh, we kicked off. And when it comes to your team, I can't think of a more essential skill to practice than gratitude right now because not only does it help shift everyone's attention away from where the brain wants to go with its negativity bias on things that are wrong and it reminds your brain about, yeah, sure, these things are wrong, but also these things are okay or good or meaningful. But gratitude creates that really important sense of connection because when I share my gratitude with you, I have to be a little bit vulnerable. I have to open up, right? When I tell you something I'm grateful for, I have to open up. You're learning something about me. And so I, you know, I work with a lot of teams and I offer them this little practice, this little ritual. I call it gratitude meeting kickoff. So at your next meeting, before you dive into the agenda, share something you're grateful for or share your gratitude for someone in the room and then ask if anyone else wants to go. And Jen, I cannot tell you, we've heard from so many teams that have been practicing this where they said, oh my God, it, it's not even about gratitude. We feel like we're getting to know each other as a yeah. team. Yeah. Because for us, that's, it's a piece of us. And I'm making this motion right now, like the way that I think of gratitude, like weaves a thread of humanity from me to you. Yeah. And I, I think you, and you and I have talked about this. I mean, I, the thing I love about sharing gratitude with others is, you know, there's a dual benefit, you know, both people get the benefit, the person that you're sharing the gratitude towards and you, right. And so it's, it's a, it's a no brainer. It's like, why, why not do it? Right. (laughs) Because everybody, it, it lifts all boats. Everybody benefits from it. Yes. Uh, Here's interesting bit of research that um, I came across when I was working on my book. Um, I forget the exact numbers, but something like 60% of people in the workplace, um, uh, employees say that they wish that their boss expressed gratitude towards them more often, or just even talked about gratitude. And yet half the leaders say that they don't do it. And, um, I I just want to comment on this. I don't think it's because they're bad people. I think that it's lack of familiarity. And also, I just want to say this. When I began to practice gratitude, I thought it was so weird. I just want to say this. Like, very awkward. Like, (laughs) what? It's so weird. Like, for myself, it felt weird. I felt like, I don't know, it was like really cheesy, I felt. Mm -hmm. And then to express it to others, I just thought also like cheesy and awkward. And we all, there's a lot of research that shows we tend to overestimate how awkward it's going to feel and underestimate how good it's going to make the other person feel. Mm -hmm. So I just bring up some of this research for anyone who's listening and like, well, it sounds good, but like, I can't imagine doing this in my workplace. Start small. That's my advice. Don't start in a meeting then. Start by saying it to another person. (laughs) I often say this in my workshops on gratitude, like own the fact that it's weird. Be like, listen, this is so awkward, but I heard this lady on an interview. I read this book and she says to do it. So I'm giving it a shot. Like chances are other people feel the same. And so break the ice just by owning that it's weird. And the last thing I just want to say, you never have to use the word gratitude ever. Like, if that's not your vibe, don't use that word. I tell people why they're awesome all the time. Mm -hmm. That's my language. So you don't actually have to say, Jen, I'm grateful for you. You can say, hey, I really appreciate your thoughtful questions in this interview. Or I think it's so awesome that you ask such thoughtful questions. So make it your own. But 
the, when you practice it a little bit, I, I do promise it, the, the cheesiness, the awkwardness does, does go away because you realize how awesome it feels. Yeah, but I love the, the, the guidance or the advice on making it your own because I do think that that, you know, that helps, right? We, we, we totally stuck on like, oh, what are the exact like right words that I'm supposed to say? And, you know, just say it, say, say what you're thinking, say what you're feeling, you know, that's it. A thousand percent. And one last thing, again, I'm, you know, I, I keep gathering these tips because I work with so many people. And so I keep learning about the different reservations. It might be more comfortable for you if you're just starting out to write it. Mm. So you can send an email or a Slack message or a text, like, of course, or even a gratitude note. In fact, writing someone a gratitude note has been shown to be one of the most meaningful ways to practice gratitude. So if it feels really awkward to say it, no worries. Start by writing it down. Um, there is no wrong way to do it. And the only two requirements are that you're genuine about it. So you, you, we can't fake each other out. And the second is tell the person why. So thank you is not gratitude. Right. It's really being polite and that's great, but it's not gratitude. So tell the person why, you know. Um, so like in my example, like Jenna, you ask, it's really awesome that you ask really thoughtful questions in a podcast interview. There it is. Um, but that why is really important. But yeah, how you do it and the words you use, that's less important. Yeah. And you pick up on, on and I, I'm sure you saw it, but on a blog I wrote recently um, about, you know, replying to all just to say thank you. <laughs> it's not a expression of gratitude. So no, share all of our inboxes. <laughs> no, that's an expression of, I don't know, that's just an annoying thing. We all must stop. Yes, exactly. So, all right. So we did one and two. What's three, four, and five? <laughs> Well, three is self-care, but I, um, I have a different definition of self-care than I think most of us are used to. And when I came up with this definition for myself, I sort of was a breakthrough in how I thought about it. So the way that I define self-care is it's a skill of fueling your emotional, mental, and physical energy. If you think about it, like take an example of a car, right? A car needs gasoline or electricity. I have a gas car still. So it needs gasoline to do its job of being a car, right? When the car runs out of gas, you don't sit there and go, well, I don't know if I have time to fill it up, uh, right? Because then the car can't go anywhere. Or you don't sit there and go, well, I don't know. Does the car deserve more gas? Has it done enough? You know, we don't, we do none of that. And yet we apply this to ourselves as well. I mean, how many times are, do we feel really exhausted, but we don't take a break because our to-do list is not empty yet, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so for me, reframing self-care as the skill of fueling your emotional, mental, and physical energy is a way to break through the guilt associated with it. And also the way that I feel like our society treats self-care is like, um, I don't know, like a prize you get for doing enough, being tired yeah, enough. Yeah. yeah, like, you know, that, well, that's how I used to practice that. I didn't even call it that. But like, I get to a place where I was hardly functioning and then I'd zone out in front of Netflix for two hours and I'd be like, oh, yeah, self-care. That's not self-care. That's like your system shutting down and can't do any more work. And so... Um, to me, this is one of the most important reframes that I think we can make. And when I say we, I mean individually, teams, companies, and our society. And it's to recognize that, you know, doesn't matter how much you love your job, doesn't mean you have unlimited energy to do it, you know? And so recognizing that self-care and fueling your energy is your responsibility, and I, I love working with leaders on this and telling them that 
this is your number one leadership skill. And this is when you practice it and when you elevate it to that responsibility in the team, that's where you see people really um, start to make a commitment to it. And so I tell teams all the time, talk about how you're practicing self-care, put it on the agenda, right? In your one-on-ones, ask people what they're doing to fuel their emotional, mental, and physical energy. And to me, this is... um, You know, I keep thinking, I keep saying this in some interviews, like, I feel like the pandemic has shown us how essential this is. And yet, I feel like, you know, old habits die hard. But I think it's so essential to recognize that as a human being, energy is your fuel. And so if you don't continuously fuel your energy reservoir, you are going to run out. That's where burnout happens. And you're not going to be able to honor that meaningful work you care about or people in your life. And so reframing self-care that way, I think is really, really powerful. And and what are some tips for how to better manage our energy? I'm assuming that looks different for everyone, but what are maybe what are some of your go-tos? Yes, it's a great question. And it is different for everyone, but there's a a couple of common uh, things. So the first thing is just to get into the habit. It's one of the practices in the book. I call it the the check-in, just to check in with yourself on a regular basis. I never did this before I burned out. And if I heard this interview, I would be gone right now. What do you mean check in with myself and check how I'm feeling? Who cares? Who cares? I don't know. What does that matter? But we check in on our colleagues, right? We check in on our Um, teams, we say, hey, how are you doing? How are you feeling? So just becoming aware of, well, how is my emotional energy? Like how am I feeling physically is really powerful. Research shows that people who have this kind of awareness naturally have greater well-being because when you become aware that, oh, I'm feeling really frazzled or I'm feeling really exhausted, you can then choose to do something to support yourself. So that's the first step. And then there's kind of two areas I want everyone to think about. Um, Self-care is both about doing things that fuel your energy but it's also about doing fewer things that unnecessarily drain it. And I feel that area doesn't get enough oomph. Um, so I actually spend more time on it in the book than doing things that fuel your energy. So a couple of things to think about, just examples of things to do less. Multitasking, which is really not multitasking. It's switch tasking, and it's a form of emotional labor. It's incredibly exhausting. Uh, negative self-talk. The a burnout doesn't just come from having too much work. It comes from how we treat ourselves. And so constantly criticizing yourself drains your energy. Um, mindless social media scrolling or mindless reading of the news. Nothing wrong with the news. Nothing wrong with social media. I love Instagram, as you know, Jen. <laughs> but it's the mindless part. It's when you, you, know, you go on to read one news story. It's an hour and you're reading about pandas in China and you're not quite sure why. I love pandas. Um, it's the mindless part that's really draining. Um, making nonstop decisions, which I know is really, really tough for, you know, all of us who work because it just comes up, but we can get more intentional about which decisions to make and which decisions to not micromanage because making a decision um, takes energy. So think about what are one or two things that you do that unnecessarily drain your energy and how you could do them a little bit less. And then in terms of fueling your energy, um, you know, what I encourage everyone to do is, dedicate at least 15 minutes a day. We all have 15 minutes, 15 minutes a day. And I call it your daily fuel up and do something during that time. I think, you know, actually, I'm going to correct myself. I was going to say, I think we all know what fuels our energy. That's not true, Jen. I can't tell you how many workshops I've done during the pandemic where people have said to me, you know, I've forgotten. I actually don't know. Mm -hmm. And so have a little meeting with yourself, have a little brainstorm. Think about what activities make you feel alive, give you a little bit of joy, 
invigorate you. Um, and if you'd like a few ideas, taking a short walk outside is something I recommend to every single person. It can be a five minute walk during the day, but um, it boosts your mood, it increases your motivation, it helps you feel a little bit more um, kind of centered in your own energy. Um, but getting into that habit of checking in with yourself. So when you're doing your daily fuel up, check in and be like, well, how am I feeling? And that will guide you, you know, on days when I'm feeling really frazzled, maybe my 15 minutes of sitting in my big red chair reading a little Murakami, right? Maybe on days when I'm feeling really exhausted, um, I do a little yoga. So getting into that supportive relationship with yourself by checking in and then identifying something that can help you kind of um, fill up that energy reservoir um, is a good way to think about it. Yeah. I, you know, I know for me on the <laughs> on the days that I'm I'm feeling pretty good, the, the check-ins are a lot easier. You know, they, yes. they, come, they come easier. They're a lot more natural. When I'm frazzled, it's like I just, you know, I, I, I skip right over it, you know? Mm. So I give you a, a suggestion. This is something I do. Um, it, it's really helpful for our brain to change our physical surroundings. Um, our brains are huge inertia machines. So if you're sitting in front of your computer and you're checking in with yourself and you're feeling really, really frazzled, it's really hard to step out your brain just wants to keep rolling. So get up and maybe leave the room. Like it can be for 30 seconds. I'll often, so I'm in my home office now. Um, and then often when I like want to check in, I'll get up and I'll go make tea. And that, that is my checking in with myself. And it really helps to physically change your surroundings. Um, it helps to pause that interruption in, in, in our brains. Love it. Okay. All right. We still have four and five, right? Or did we? All right. Okay. So the next one you're going to love with all the work that you do on connection. So the next skill um, is intentional kindness and compassion. And um, I probably don't need to say this to the listeners of your awesome podcast, but as a reminder, as human beings, one of our core needs is to feel like we belong, is to feel like we are connected to other people. When we feel isolated, our brain interprets that as a sign of danger. It actually increases inflammation in our bodies. By the way, that's very different from being alone. Having quality alone time, I think, is a really powerful form of self-care. But when we feel isolated, and so we need to feel connected to other people. And the best way that I know how to fuel that sense of connection is through actively practicing kindness, which is nothing more complex than doing something kind and not expecting anything in return. And the thing that I have found, you know, as I've worked with so many teams and companies over the last couple of years is we tend to underestimate the powerful impact on ourselves and on other people of really small acts of kindness. Mm -hmm. Like we just talked about checking in with ourselves like checking in with a colleague, but not asking them about work, just checking in and saying, Jen, how are you? How are you feeling? You know, I'm here to, you know, whatever you want to share. It Listening to others, giving people an opportunity to share or simply saying something meaningful to help elevate or fuel them or cheer them up. Those are tiny things, but what they communicate to that person outside of our words or even the specific act is, I care about you and you are not alone. And that is so powerful and so essential, especially right now after everything we've gone through. But it turns out the biggest gift of kindness is actually to ourselves. Because every time you do something kind, you are literally reminding yourself, I'm not alone. 
I am connected to people I care about. And, you know, your brain also releases serotonin and oxytocin, which make you feel really good. But I think it's bigger than that. I think every act of kindness is this reminder to self and to the other person, we are not alone. And that is such a necessity. It's not, I was going to say, that's such an important part of being alive. That's a, it's like oxygen. It's such Mm -hmm. a necessity. Amen to that. (laughs) Amen to that. Amen to that. I can't even add on to that. That was so good. And finally is the bigger why. So acceptance, gratitude, self-care, intentional kindness, and the bigger why. And the bigger why is the skill of um, really connecting to your sense of purpose by connecting the tasks and activities you do every day to how they help someone else, how they contribute to something bigger than you, or how they help you reach a meaningful goal. You know, when we talk about sense of purpose in life or meaning, I think we always like think of something really huge, you know, or something that's like, it's out there and I have to go find it. Well, your sense of purpose is in your to-do list, actually. It's in your life as it is. And one of my favorite practices from the book, I call it the to-do list makeover. It's very simple. Look at your to-do list, pick a couple to-dos, the more annoying, the better. You know, those to-dos that have been like moving around for a couple of weeks, like those are great. You mean months? (laughs) I mean, exactly. What did I say? (laughs) Wait. And ask yourself, who does this help? Like when I get this done, Mm. who does it help? And actually answer the question. And I cannot promise you that, you know, you'll be like, yes, oh my God, I'm so motivated to do this now. But I do promise you that you'll feel a little bit more motivated to get it done. Because when we connect what we do to how it contributes to someone else, we enter what's called a pro-social mindset, um, which helps us feel more motivated. It actually helps us better manage stress because our stress then has purpose. So I'm not just stressed working on this new presentation. I am stressed working on this new presentation because I want to make it really good because it's going to help a lot of people who are listening to me. And so the thing about stress, actually, it's a good thing I want to mention Um, stress in itself is not bad. Um, but one of the hardest stresses for us in life is uncertain stress, like that stress that's just there and we don't know the, you know, when it would ever end. So when you're working towards something or you have a bunch of to do's and you're really stressed out, connecting to your sense of purpose, like this is going to be helpful to this person. This is going to contribute to my team. I have this goal to write a book. So working on this draft is really helping me get further along in this goal. Your, your stress becomes more manageable because now you're not just stressed. You're stressed because you're working towards something meaningful. I love that. Reframing. Reframing of stress is really, really All powerful. the time. <laughs> <laughs> so, so thank you for taking us through the emotional fitness skills. And, and I think in particular, you know, talking about how they could help us as individuals, but also, you know, about emotionally fit teams and how they can help us as leaders. But, you know, I think what I see the most of is that, you know, cause you said that we have to apply these skills to ourselves before we can mm. create emotionally fit teams. But I, I think many leaders with the best of intentions don't realize that, you know, that they're applying these skills to their teams and they don't realize that they're not applying them to their, to themselves. So they, they self-sacrifice like you did. And like, I yes. so many people that have gone through, burnout in the ways in which we have. I mean, so how do we illuminate this gap to leaders? Because so many leaders that I know are incredible people and 
their desire is to take care of their teams at the like at the their own expense, right? And taking care of themselves feels selfish and they just don't have, you know, that you know, that lens to say, okay, wait, I do really need to apply this to myself before I can truly apply it to my team? Yeah, it's a great question, you know, and I actually love this question. There's a whole chapter in my book on leadership because awesome humans are leaders, but it doesn't mean you manage people. My definition of a leader is you are a leader if you positively impact other people's capacity to thrive. So you can be an individual contributor with a lot of impact. And so I think it's such an important um, thing to talk about. So a couple of things that I want to offer. Um, I'll start with the hardest one first. And this is something that um, I've thought a long time about what would have stopped me in my tracks, right? What would have interrupted my inertia as a martyr leader? Because so many of us, um, and I write about this in my book, so many of us have taken this idea of servant leadership to meet martyr leadership, like mm. at the expense of myself. By the way, I went back and I read the original essay by Robert Greenleaf about servant leadership. And nowhere in there does he talk about sacrificing yourself for your team. Um, but we've taken it, you know, we as a society, we like to make things extreme. This idea of leaders eat last, right? I hope my, I wrote a um, HBR article about managers. Please don't put yourself last. And so the thing that I would have interrupted me, and this is hard, what I'm going to offer is hard, but uh, it's, it's, and I've worked with leaders who have done this. Uh, I really encourage you to have an honest conversation with your team, or you can like have this as an anonymous Google Doc, where you ask your team about things like, how do they feel you're doing um, uh, as a leader in terms of your own emotional well-being, mm. how your stress impacts them. And I have to tell you, I have had, because I do these leadership programs, and this is homework, and one of them. And the leaders who did this, they came back with, I mean, uh, they just sort of had this breakthrough because through the words of their very caring team members, what they heard was, uh, listen, when you don't sleep and you work nonstop, you're really snappy. And I don't really feel comfortable coming and talk to you because I know you just can't take it. So I just sort of take my problems and don't tell you. And no caring leader wants their team to feel that way. I know this to be true. And so it's actually something I remember so clearly, my team really withdrawing uh, when I was burning out and really not telling me anything because they didn't think I can handle it. So have those hard, honest conversations. But a couple other things to just consider. Um, you know, as a leader it's not just your actions or your words that impact your team. Your energy and your feelings do on their own. We are human beings. We're all connected. Our emotions are contagious. Our energy is contagious. We all know this to be true, right? You even get on a Zoom with someone or on a podcast or on the phone or in a meeting and you immediately feel the energy of that person. So as a leader, what kind of energy, how do you want to be impacting your team? You know what energy I brought to my team when I ignored my own emotional fitness? Heaviness. Mm -hmm. I just brought heaviness. Wherever I went, it was this dark cloud of heaviness. And by the way, my face could be covered with a nice fake smile. If you look at photos of me from like 10 years ago, please don't. But, um, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of this, I call it the stock image of positive and confident leader. Yep. You know, like arms crossed, fake smile. But I wasn't fooling anyone. We sense each other's energy. So as a leader, this is the question to ask yourself and to recognize that 
your number one job as a leader is not to manage projects or priorities or budgets. Your number one job is to manage emotions, your own, your team members, and to manage energy. And you simply can't do it without paying attention to yours first. Because if you want to be that positive impact, if you want to positively impact your team's ability to thrive, you have to recognize that your energy and your emotions are part of that. So let's talk about emotions and emotions in the workplace. So if your number one job is a leader to manage emotions, yours and your teams, and, and we talk about this and work better together. So I mm-hmm. want to dig in with you. There's, you know, this longstanding debate about emotions in the workplace and do mm-hmm. they have a role in the workplace and are they good? Are they bad? What's your response to that? I, I don't mean this to sound flippant, but I also kind of do. That's a really ridiculous debate. We can separate I just, the human from the emotion. Right? Yes, but I just like, you know, like, I, it's just like debating, you know, is there oxygen in the air? And is it good for us? Well, try not breathing for a minute. And there it is, you know. So this debate, this it, 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 it has wrong hy- hypothesis. And part of the hypothesis is that somehow we could, like, not bring our emotions with us to work. But that is a non- that can't be. We don't change into some uniform of machines. So the choice isn't between emotions at work or not emotions at work. It's emotions out in the open and acknowledging that they exist and acknowledging that they influence our ability to do great work and innovate and connect with each other, or it's pretending that they don't. That's the choice. And we can't leave them outside of ourselves. It is who we are. And I am a little bit encouraged, I have to tell you, Jen, like I'm a little bit encouraged, um, you know, just the many companies that I've worked with throughout the pandemic that like, I feel like I'm hearing this less. It mm-hmm. could be selective bias. I don't know, no, but I feel I think like you are hearing it. I would agree I, with that. Yeah, I'm hearing it less. And I think that um, I hate to like even use this term of a silver lining of the pandemic, but I think the pandemic has pushed us all to such an extreme place of stress and exhaustion and difficult emotions that... We in the workplace we've seen that well we we really can't remove them from who we are like we they've become so extreme that they're so evident and so I, I really I really don't want that debate to die I'd love to have a more productive conversation about how do we embrace how do we teach um, our ourselves and our teams at work to manage our emotions better because it's not just our own again our emotions are contagious so a team as a unit has an emotional culture to it. You know, um, the relationship between um, the boss and the people who directly report to them is one of the most influential. So um, when that boss has greater well-being, is better about managing their emotions, everyone who reports to them is better at that and the other way around. So I'd love for us to instead of have a conversation about, well, how do we, how do we help each other better manage emotions at work? I think that's a much more productive conversation. Sign me up for that one. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So one, one, perhaps one last question for you, Natalie, and this is, as I knew it would be an amazing conversation. You know, you, you talked about your experience with burnout. I, you know, have a similar but different experience with burnout. And I would consider those kind of extreme cases of burnout where we really weren't able to like mm-hmm. continue functioning in the roles in our lives. But you also talk about daily burnout. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. can you differentiate between the two of those and then also talk to me about 
how these emotional fitness skills can help us break free from daily burnout mm-hmm. and, and, and big burnout, right? <laughs> yeah, well, it's a kind of, I see it as a um, kind of a snowball. You know, yeah. when I look back, I actually was burning out on a daily basis for a mm-hmm. decade. And to me, daily burnout, I think it's something we can all relate to. Um, you know, it's that feeling where you're just running on empty or barely empty all the time, where you um, feel spent at the end of every day, where you start to really resent work that maybe you otherwise really care about, you start to withdraw um, socially, those are all symptoms of burnout. But I think we can all relate to this feeling of just feeling this on a daily basis. I cannot tell you how many people use similar words to just tell me like, I don't know, I just feel like I sprint through every day on barely enough energy to get through. And then I collapse exhausted. And I, I, I all I do is think about my work. And I don't actually want to think about my work because I'm starting to really hate my job. So there's a cycle of daily burnout. And it snowballs. Right. And that's what happened in my case. When I look back, I felt like that for a decade. I just ignored it um, because I thought, you know, who cares again how I feel? So, so many of us, and by the way, I just want to acknowledge this like, I teach this stuff for a living and I've gone through a really dark, terrible burnout. And there are still days when I'm pretty burnt out. I've just gone Mm -hmm. through this book launch and I can probably tell you, I probably was daily and maybe still am daily burnt out. I pushed it too far. Um, the, the awesome thing though, and this is the benefit we get when we practice these skills consistently is I have awareness and awareness is huge because awareness gives us choices. So I am aware that I've really depleted my energy reservoir and therefore I am immediately making choices in my life to refuel like this past weekend for, um, the long weekend for three days. I announced to my family, it was like the first weekend I wasn't working and I don't know, three years of the book. And I said, I just need like, my brain is so tired from thinking. I need to watch movies that like require no thoughts. So we announced this was going to be our our silly movie, silly feel good movie weekend. So we watched, I just want to offer these and to be a good citizen. So we watched um, the proposal with Sandra Bullock. We watched, um, I think life as it could be. Oh, see, I love it. You're just like me. I watch a movie oh. and then like, you know, three days yeah. later, I can't remember Almost. that I watched it or even what the name was. <laughs> three days later? Uh, an hour later? Maybe. <laughs> what are you talking all about? Right, keep going. I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah, no, no, it's all good. And so I'm just giving an example. So I became aware that I was so depleted in every way that I immediately was like, okay, like, this is what I need. This is how I like, I, do, I need my system to rest. So awareness is really powerful. And so to me, um, you know, my big answer, how do you get, break free from daily burnout is you recognize that um, you and your job are two separate entities in a relationship with each other. This is actually, this is actually not even in the book. I've kind of had this breakthrough after talking about the book. Um, so I'm going to talk about this at South by uh, in a few weeks, but just having that lens, like I am in a relationship with my job and like in any relationship with another person, it's got to be healthy. What does that mean? That means I can't just rely on my job to give me all that I need. No job can give us all that we need in life. So that means I have to fuel myself outside of work. I can't be overly dependent on my job for all the things, for all the joy and meaning, because that's not a healthy relationship. And in order for me to come and be fueled 
at my job to like do my best. I need to take care of myself. I need to do things to fuel my energy. So I offer this as a lens, again, as a way to look at your, your relationship with your job. I think it's a really powerful way to kind of break free from that, you know, I'm just running an empty trying to get done, things done cycle. Because one of the myths um, about burnout, and I know you know this, Jen, is that we burn out just from having too much work. That's not the case. Having too much work is definitely part of it, but it's just one thing. Um, feeling like what you're doing doesn't have purpose, um, feeling like you don't have any control, feeling like you don't um, over-identifying with your job, so not really like having anything else. Those are some other causes of burnout and daily burnout. So when we start to look at, okay, so I'm in a relationship with my job. Like what kind of relationship is it? Is it healthy? Um, oh, I'm completely relying on my job for all joy and meeting, and now I hate it because it's not giving me all joy and meeting okay, I actually need to go watch some silly movies or do some painting or see some friends or whatever else fuels me. I think it's a really powerful construct that can help us break from that cycle. I'm just taking a big deep inhale and deep exhale because um, I don't know who, who else needed to hear this today, but I needed to hear everything that you just gave us, Natalie. So oh, thank you. Well, Jen, that means the world to me. As you know, on a personal level, that means so much to me. Well, you know, I mean, we, we talk about it often, but, you know, just because we do this work doesn't mean that, you know, we too don't need to be coached and reminded if it was easy, we'd all be doing it. So um, we have to we have to have each other's back. <laughs> That's why they're skills, right? That's exactly. the whole thing. That's why these are skills. It's not like what you, you know, um, I was talking to someone the other day who's a marathon runner. We we're talking about this and I said, um, well, like you wouldn't expect yourself to just be able to run a marathon, like get up out of the chair and run a marathon if you haven't been running and training. So this is the same thing. We have to practice these skills, whether we teach them for a living, whether we've had really painful life lessons. These are skills. The more we practice, the easier it becomes to practice. But there isn't, you know, someone asked me like, well, so now, you know, you've been teaching this and practicing this for five years. And I'm like, yeah, and I still have to do it all the time. Because and that's, you know, and I just want to say, like, in closing, I think it's a really beautiful thing. Like one of the things that um, I feel fundamentally different about in my life is that my life is still challenging, just like yours, just like everyone who's listening. And I'm still human and my brain still gets in the way and all those things. But I have this toolkit with me and it's with me all the time. Now, sometimes I choose not to use it. That's on me. But it's very, um, it's very empowering to know that these skills are with you. Um, it gives us the sense of, yeah, this is hard, but I can support myself through it. And that's that's really priceless. That's really an incredible feeling, a feeling I didn't have for most of my life that I really, really like daily appreciate. I, I completely agree with you. It helps you. It helps you remember that I can, you know, whatever it is, I can get through it. Mm -hmm. Yep. Mm -hmm. Well, Natalie, thank you again so much. I, I knew this conversation was going to be incredible. And um, as usual, you over-delivered. So thank you again. And it was just great to reconnect. I needed your energy today. It was absolutely contagious. Oh, like I said, that that's it. That's all I need to hear. That's my fuel. Because I'm, you know, I'm, uh, as you know, uh, after you launch a book, there's all kinds of things. And you're like, wait, does anyone care? What does it matter? What did I do? What's it, you know, so um, that is really meaningful to me. And I'm so grateful. I really am grateful as always for such thoughtful questions because it helps me 
over deliver. Um, and I'm so grateful that we got a chance to connect again. And I hope I deliver to the second time guest. <laughs> you did. <laughs> you set the bar high for the next, the next repeat guests. <laughs> okay, awesome. I love it. I love All it. All right. Thank you. Thanks so much, Jen. And thank you, team, for making it awesome. Um, and uh, yeah, like I said, means a lot to me. And I... When I, I just want you to know, like, I see you when you share something on Instagram about your workout. I always like, I don't know, there's like a virtual hug flies your way. So just <laughs> feel that next time you share something. That, that means a lot. I'm so grateful Natalie could be with us today to talk about the Awesome Human Project. Thank you to our producers, Rivet360, and our listeners. You can find the WorkWell podcast series on Deloitte.com, or you can visit various podcatchers using the keyword WorkWell, all one word, to hear more. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe so you get all of our future episodes. If you have a topic you'd like to hear on the WorkWell podcast series, or maybe a story you would like to share, please reach out to me on LinkedIn. My profile is under the name Jen Fisher, or on Twitter at JenFish23. We're always open to your recommendations and feedback. And of course, if you like what you hear, please share, post, and like this podcast. Thank you and be well.